Welcome to Harlem Capital's More Equity podcast. We're so glad you're here. Each season, we'll be exploring a new aspect of the startup and VC landscape by speaking to founders, investors, and top industry leaders. Welcome to our third episode. Today, I'm joined by Sydney Thomas, General Partner of Impressionism Capital, a pre-seed fund investing in companies building technologies that will make life better for real people. Let's dive into our conversation. Fantastic. Well, welcome, Sydney, uh, to the More Equity podcast uh, by Harlem Capital. Um, we're so excited to have you in this series as part of our diverse emerging managers on the rise. Um, and, you know, you've been a great friend to me and the ecosystem to the firm the last few years. And so super excited to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely. Uh, well, I know we've gotten, we've been connected for a while, um, but we'd love to introduce you to our audience who might not have the privilege of hearing about you or knowing about what your work you've been working on the last few years. So can you share a little bit of background on who you are, where you grew up, um, and what you've been up to uh, the last couple of years? Yeah. So I am Sydney Thomas. Great to meet you all. I'm from San Diego, California. And so in Oakland now, which is not too far from home home, I am really, uh, have spent time in multiple careers. And so I actually started my career in the public sector, worked in the Bloomberg administration, worked for Congressman Barbara Lee, worked for Michelle Ree when she was the head of DC public schools. And about six years ago, started in venture at Precursor Ventures alongside Charles Hudson, who is the founder and managing partner there had the great fortune of growing that fund alongside him for the last six years. It was about a $3 million fund when I joined, $100 million AUM by the time I left, 10 deals when I was there, 200 plus by the time I left, and you know just one fund when I was there, and now uh, multiple funds over. It was an amazing opportunity to learn how to build a fund, to invest in pre-seed, to build out my own thesis, and so leveraging that background combined with my public sector background to launch Impressionism Capital, which is what I'm really excited to talk about today. Likewise, I've been super excited ever since I learned about the launch of Impressionism uh, and where you're going there. I um, actually would love to start off with the name of the fund, because um, unique from many of the others I've heard of. Um, and so I'd love to hear the inspiration behind why Impressionism Capital uh, was actually my favorite, one of my favorite forms of art. So super excited to hear about that. I love talking to other art, uh, uh, I was going to say art nerds, but I don't want to put you in that box. <laughs> other folks who love art. I am a huge fan as well. And so I actually um, started digging into it because I'm one I mean, like all of the super basic VC names are, are taken. And so that was just like not even an option. <laughs> and so that you really do have to take like another layer deeper when you're looking into what types of name you, what type of name you want for your fund. And so started looking around my house at things that I loved. And I just kept seeing all of this impressionism artwork and started researching the history of impressionism and was so surprised to learn that the history aligned actually really closely to how I think about the world, which is that, you know, the impressionists of the 1800s were considered rebels of their time. 
in that they were tired of painting the kings and queens of that time period. They wanted to have their painting reflect the lives that they lived, which was the lives of their families, of their neighbors, of the folks who are walking outside. And it's the exact same ethos of how I think about the world and what I'm building at Impress Cat which is that we're investing in companies that reflect that real world, not really the folks who I think um, have been really um, over uh, fished is, a, is actually a word I heard recently. It's like these populations that have been overfished with regards to making sure that tech works for them. There's actually huge communities that have been underfished in that there's a lot of technology that can be applied to them, but they just haven't been uh, paid attention to. Ooh, I've never heard the term overfished or underfished um, in that kind of context. So very cool to hear about the origin of the name. Um, and I'm kind of struck by the point on rebels and making sure that like what you want to invest in today um, reflects the real world. But um, and so I was curious, given you worked in the public sector and a few other roles before VC first and then now Impressionism Capital, um, how did those experiences kind of shape this perspective as an investor that led to wanting your thesis to be investing in companies that reflect the real world? It's such a great question. Um, I think that it was truly the foundation that I was able to build on to develop this thesis because so much of our work in the public sector is for those communities. It's for that last mile consumer. And so my work at in the Bloomberg administration was how do we actually get access to high quality services to schools that are generally underfunded and in more, um, like, frankly, far away areas from Midtown Manhattan. So, like, how are we getting things to um, the, like, how are we getting things to Queens? How are we getting things to East Brooklyn? How are we getting things to Morningside Heights? And so, like, all of these places that are generally um, don't have access to the same types of PTA support that the schools in, like, the Upper West Side or Upper East Side have access to. How are we getting them the same types of um, opportunities so that those kids are on equal playing field? And so I was able to see firsthand the challenges, but also the opportunities that were available by serving these consumers and want was wanted to translate that into VC as well. I'd also say it aligns also with my own personal background. I'm from San Diego, as I mentioned, grew up pretty basic. My dad is a kidney doctor recently retired. I'm so happy, so happy he retired. <laughs> and let, That's huge. My mom, right? It's, it was so hard to get him to retire. He loves working. And my mom is stayed at home. But, you know, my mom's also from West Virginia and so has about 12 um, siblings. And so I have 30 some odd cousins. And so I spent my summers growing up in West Virginia with my extended family which gave me so much exposure to this really large gap around how folks are able to access opportunity. My my experiences were not reflected in the experiences of my family members. And I was just curious and became obsessed with this and have spent my entire career to solving that problem. That's incredible. Um, and I think what, what I'm super curious then now is, um, you know, you go from having this, these experiences, building this thesis, um, but you're still at a, a former fund, um, a great fund, but then you want to go off and launch your own thing with Impressionism Capital. I guess, how do you, what's that transition point from like having that initial thesis to then 
thinking about the actual fund, its fund strategy, and then how you go out to ultimately start fundraising. Um, would love if you could walk us through a little bit of that journey. It is, um, it's complex. And so I think that one of the things that I entered Precursor with was a very clear vantage point of what I wanted to invest in and what I didn't want to invest in. And so I started a podcast actually when I started at Precursor. Not as nice as this one. This is great. Riverside is an awesome <laughs> technology that I'm excited to dig into after we hop off. And so um, I was doing it with my cousin was the producer. <laughs> and I would interview people on uh, some free tech software. I don't even remember the name. And But the goal was really for me to get exposure to this community of entrepreneurs who I thought were the types of founders who I would want to back when I had the capital to invest and also had the decision-making authority to do that myself. Once I started seeing the growth of those companies, I was, I was talking to them at their pre-seed stages and tracked them as they grew. And I started seeing folks like Sequoia backing them and General Catalyst and Andreessen. I was like, okay, I'm onto something. This is, this is fascinating. I started Starting around that time, did deals of my own at Precursor and debt backing the same types of companies. And I started seeing traction there too. And I realized that, you know, there's actually nothing else that I wanted to do except focus on the, these types of companies. And I also paid very close attention to what made me the most frustrated about BC. And one of the things that made me the most frustrated was I was loving supporting these companies at pre-seed, finding them early, being the first person to say yes. And 12 to 18 months after that, I was on sales calls, essentially, just back-to-back-to-back-to-back calls with literally hundreds of seed investors as seed has proliferated, trying to understand what they are interested in in order so, I, in order so that I could put the right company in front of them. And so I was calling investors saying, okay, you used to do digital health, but I just saw you tweet that you really like this fintech startup. So are you doing fintech now? And I thought you were doing 500K checks, but now this other investor told me that you just 1.5 to that deal. What is your strategy? And it was just exhausting. I was spending 50% of my time trying to keep track of these hundreds of seed investors. And I had seen hundreds of companies go from pre-seed to seed. And so what I realized was that I was actually, I had actually built a really strong nose. I think that's the right freeze. <laughs> I developed a strong nose. Okay, thanks. <laughs> developed a strong nose for what actually a competitive seed company looks like. And so how do I actually leverage that and build a fund that is doing pre-seed, but also has the capacity and interest and uh, capability to double down on those seed rounds, getting companies to a place where what I see at Series A is much more of a metric-driven approach to investing. And so really excited to have a, a portfolio where I'm going to be investing in pre-seed and seed uh, in Prescott. Very cool. Um, one of the things I think we see with founders a lot is that they find the thing that they're most frustrated with and they go solve that. Um, and it sounds like that's what you've done with impressionism, which I think is, is remarkable too. 
Um, in many ways, I think emerging managers are, you know, founders themselves. They're building their funds, but their funds are also startups uh, at the same time. So um, it's super cool. It like follows the seed pattern uh, along the way. And okay, so then now you're at this point, you, you're excited to launch the fund. Um, I'm curious, how did you start finding those first LPs and going through the fundraising journey? Um, and what was it, their reception to your investment strategy? It sounds like you've gotten this incredible pattern recognition of what a great pre-seed company looks like, what a great seed company looks like, that then also gets downstream capital from a Sequoia and interests in these larger multi-stage funds. Um, so I'm curious if they you know, were tapped into your strategy or something you really had to uh, work with them to understand what these underfished populations kind of look like. That's very well. I think that, um, you know, while it was frustrating having to be on those calls with all those folks all the time, it actually gave me a really strong network. And so I now have hundreds of investors who I know and who I keep up with pretty often. And so it was actually um, leveraging my network to do, to find those first LPs and making that ask where I was like, you know what, hey, I'm building this thing. I have really enjoyed our partnership over the years. Wanted to know if you would also double down on me. Do you want to actually support me in this way? And so um, it's definitely been interesting to, um, you know, be more vulnerable in that way and ask for, ask folks if they want to support you. Because when you, you know, that gives you, that they could say no. And I've gotten lots of no's and also lots of yeses. And so I think it's one of those things where you are, um, you have to practice that putting yourself out there often and constantly, much like our founders, exactly to your point, um, and where it's like what you're building is something that is so important to you. Like you see the value of this existing and you know it needs to exist, that when you get those no's, it can hurt. And also it's part of the process. So it's definitely been a journey. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's those vulnerable moments where we learn the most um, in, you know, the process of fundraising, of launching a fund, of scaling. I'm curious, can you share any stories or, you know, one of the biggest lessons you might have learned as you were going through some of those moments? Um, honestly, the biggest thing, and somebody wrote this, actually, it's a James Baldwin quote. Let me just pull it up because I took a screenshot of it. I, right. He's the best. Always. Yeah. Always has the best words of wisdom. Babe. I took a screenshot and reflect on it often, um, where he was saying essentially that like it's not. Oh, I take a lot of screenshots. Okay, here we go. It's so someone wrote, "Talent is insignificant." I know a lot of talented ruins. Beyond talent lie all the usual words: discipline, love, luck. But most of all, endurance. And I think that last piece of endurance is mm -hmm. it. It's it. It's like, how do you figure out how to get yourself up after that? No. How do you dust yourself off? How do you take care of yourself? How do you keep going? Because that is, that's the difference maker. And so I think a big part of this has been, you know, as I mostly work from home, I'm grateful that Jeremy at the house fund has given me access to his office at Thomas Scout Works. And so that's been really fun to hang with him a lot too, is how do I actually pick myself up after those big no's? You know, I just got off, if, when I get off a call and I was just like, dang it, I thought that this was going to go this way. And then it went this way. 
let me take myself on a walk. Let me take, like, a drink a glass of tea and then go back to work. Makes sense. Um, and how you push through, um, which I think is something we've been thinking about a lot uh, recently with, like, the economic downturn, uh, which I think has impacted founders on the fundraising side, investors as they're raising funds. Um, so I'm curious, how have you, how how has the market change um, impacted your journey launching the fund? Um, and I imagine, like, a lot of that endurance then comes through um, a little bit. It's definitely a wild time to be fundraising. Literally every week, I feel like I so I started talking about building this thing in midsummer, and it feels like every week something wild has happened. <laughs> it's like FTX, the stock market, Facebook. Twitter. And so it's actually ridiculous. I think that if anything, um, the thing that has been really interesting is that it allows me to focus in that like there's actually almost too much going on and that I, I can't pay attention to all of it. And so I have to focus exclusively on what I'm building to maintain a sense of, you know, like sanity because there's just no way you can keep up on Twitter right now. It's absolutely overwhelming. And I think that the other thing is that, um, you know, founders are still building, especially at pre-seed. I think that the founders are still building, the prices are amazing. And so if anything, it's really, I'm very um, motivated to get off the sidelines and start doing deals like as soon as possible. And so actually get this first closed on and go into the go go to work and so really excited to use this time to support founders who are building amazing things that I think are going to be enduring legacies because that's the other thing it's like the whole reason behind doing the both pre-seed and seed two is that I'm really excited about working with these founders for the long haul like these I'm building and investing in institutions these are not things that can just get blown over by the wind and so I think having that approach is particularly exciting for founders right now as so many investors are getting spooked. And I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. This is, this is the time. This is the time. Like, let's go. Yeah, you're right. And it's like, um, you know, people talk about wanting to be counter cyclical and it does really go against like your, you know, what you might feel like the feels like the world's falling apart, but now is actually the best time to build and to invest. And to work with incredible people who, you know, still see the big problems to be solved um, and and just need people around them to support that that journey. Um, and I guess on the point of founders and working with founders, I had the chance to speak with another investor that you've worked with. Um, and they showed that you are incredibly founder first and really truly go above and beyond for the founders you work with. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about like, what does that mean to you? How do you do that? Um, and how do you want to instill that sort of ethos as part of the culture of impressionism? Uh -huh. I think, um, well, thank you to whoever said that, I think. Uh, and also thank you to you for asking me to ask people to conduct with you to ask really great questions. I think that was so thoughtful and contributes to a really great interview experience. I have um, always been more interested in the founder journey than the investor journey, I think from day one, and largely because my background is no, so non-traditional that I actually felt much more um, 
similarities to founders than I did to co-investors. And so it's natural to me to be on their team always. And um, so I think that's part one in that, like, I, I actually don't even know what a different way of working would look like because that's just not my style. And then part two is really focusing on how I'm instilling that in Prescat is really focusing on builders. I mean, I love, I mean, that you have an engineering background. I'm similarly looking at engineers as the first hires on my team and also ex-founders because they know what it's like to build something from scratch. I think that type of energy, that type of itch just allows you to see so many more similarities to your founders that you're working with and allows for a lot of, I think, creative thinking around how are we supporting these founders to get them to whatever that end goal looks like. So a ton of sense. Um, yeah, to your point, like you're going from zero to one as well as the founders and you want to, um, if you can sort of recognize like the challenges that they go through, you're able to support them that much better. Um, and actually that same investor I chatted with mentioned that you yourself are that full stack investor. So as much as you want to bring engineers on your team, like you yourself, you know, can do it all across the fund. Um, but they mentioned that your superpower was that you work smarter um, than everybody else uh, to sort of accomplish all the things that you're building. So I'm curious, um, can you share some tips about like, what do you do to work smarter to help yourself get from zero to one faster so you can get back to supporting founders that much more? Oh my gosh, who was this? I think is- Can't I reveal. Mean, <laughs> I know, I need to send them a little like, cards and thank you. Um, I think that honestly, part of it is that um, I'm a little obsessive about everything. Um, I read this article recently about like people who are just very intense. <laughs> And I would put myself in that category. I need to read that article. I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. And intense people are like obsessive by nature. And I think also very focused people. And so it's not like, how do we get, how do we just do the thing? How do we do this thing the best way possible? And it's constantly like trying to one up yourself around like, okay, oh, I thought this idea was good, but oh man, I sat on it. And this idea is even better. Like, let's do that. And so it's really interesting. It's almost a challenge that I have for myself around how to actually build things um, in the most efficient manner possible. And so a lot of the first tools that we're building out at Impressionism are software. And so how are we actually building out software to streamline all of us so that we are as efficient as possible and so that we're focusing on the things that are most important and actually having fun on those things instead of the annoying things. And I think actually now that I'm talking it out, I also just get very annoyed by focusing on stupid stuff. <laughs> like how do I stop doing this as quickly as possible? I hate it. And so I think that annoyance also leads to this restlessness that leads to the obsession. Mm-hmm where it's like, we could be doing that better. Or like, why are we spending our time there? Um, I'd actually love to learn a little bit more about the software that you're building. Um, I feel like most firms haven't necessarily taken that approach. I can think of a few who built their own software, like a 776 um, at Harley Capital. Uh, we cobbled together a lot of no-code tools to make things work and more efficient, uh, which I personally love. But 
Can you share a little bit more, like what kinds of software are you building? Um, that might be helpful for others who are launching funds as well. Yeah. So we're definitely in the no code bundling tool uh, category as well around how are we actually identifying the questions that we need to I mean, honestly, the first thing that I'm excited about building that we're doing right now, and so I'll focus there, is how do we completely get rid of the first 30-minute phone screen? I think that, that I spent so much time doing that um, over the years of my experience of being an investor, and I have, um, I take very little pleasure in that 30-minute call. I think that it ends up being very um, focused on data that we could have extracted in an Airtable format in some sort of form, a Google Sheet. And so really the focus that I'm building with the team right now is how are we identifying what those things are that we need to get, gather from that 30-minute meeting, put them online. And so actually our first interaction with the founder is much more meaningful. And so we actually have identified that we're deeply interested we have these specific questions. We're coming to them with actually a number of well-researched um, insights around what we're looking for. And so we can actually navigate those questions in more in a more efficient manner. So that's, that's V1. There's a whole bunch of other pieces of software that I'm just used to now uh, around like CRM building and um, Miro around like tracking projects and like Asana. And so really excited to leverage a whole host of them. But that that's the one that's really top of mind that we've been building out as a team over the last month or so. I love that um, in terms of, and I think it then aligns you better with founders where they know that you're not wasting their time. You're not, you know, wasting your time. So it makes those future conversations that much better, that much deeper, because you're not just asking, okay, what's your revenue? You know, when did you launch? How many customers do you have? You're getting all of that info kind of out of the way and can ask some like meatier questions, um, which is actually the next one I have for you. I was curious, as you talk with founders, as you get into those deeper diligence conversations, do you have a favorite question to understand who founders are, how they think, or like what will drive your excitement and, and conviction to want to invest? I love asking founders about things they've built before. And oftentimes, you know, I'm backing first-time founders. And so what they're telling me that they built before isn't a venture-backed company. It's a community that they built on Clubhouse. It's a um, nonprofit that they built in Denver. It's a consulting company that they built that was a side hustle. And those types of questions allow me to actually also understand what type of founder are you? How do you build things? How do you think about building things? What are your goals? What are you excited about? How are you resourceful? And those things are, I think, hugely important to me, especially at Precede when a lot of what you're evaluating is, is this founder really, really, one, qualified to do this work, also incentivized to do this work, and back to those earlier points, like resilient enough to do this work and, and stay at it, when things get hard. And I think part of the resilience too is like, do they care enough about this problem? Like, does this problem need to exist so deeply, you know, in their soul that in order to create, that they want to actually dedicate a meaningful amount of their life to solving it? And that's a really important part of the evaluation for me too. Yeah, 
mm-hmm. like are you like will you sort of like run through walls to solve this problem or like if you find out like you're still passionate about the problem the way you're going about it isn't right like can you pivot can you identify ways of getting back to fixing the thing that you you know are so frustrated by or think should be changed in the world exactly because i think a lot of people um like honestly and this might come off a little brash but i think it's actually quite easy to get a job at facebook i think it's easy to get a job at google especially if you're a founder i think that those folks are actually like biting at the bits to hire those folks um and so i think it's really um i think that founders opportunity set is quite wide if a founder decides one day that they don't want to do the company they'll probably have five to ten job offers within a few days because they're just really smart that's why they are building a company and so you really want to make sure that this really smart person is really dedicated to building this company because if they're not they could do anything and they they will get opportunities to do anything else that's interesting i hadn't thought of it that way um i guess then as a flip side like that was your favorite question to get to the motivations I guess, as you think about, you know, deciding between companies, are there any red flags that you think about that come up where you're like, "Mm, I'm I'm not quite as sure about this as I was earlier on, like the delicious process? Um, I actually think that revenue is uh, a red herring at pre-seed. I don't think actually that revenue matters. I think that oftentimes at pre-seed, the product is pretty janky. <laughs> and so the expectation, right? The expectation post investment is probably that they're going to scrap that product altogether and build something new. And so revenue will go back to zero. And so it's really, I think, a proxy for can do people care about this product? And so I think getting to the underlying reason of like, why do people care? Why would people pay? Why, who is this market is the better question. Than mm-hmm. revenue at pre-seed. Makes sense because there's still so much to be built. There's still so much room to grow and go. And so if you've already had it completely solved at pre-seed, there's like, okay, well, what else can we uncover about this right now? Um, very cool. Very interesting. Um, and then I think still in the same vein of like how you've worked with founders, um, I did speak with a founder you've, you've worked with previously, and they shared that you are remarkable at giving feedback, um, which I think is something that like VCs are notorious for doing really poorly. Um, and so I'd love to hear any advice that you can share with like current VCs, aspiring VCs or future fund managers about giving better feedback that resonates with founders. Because um, I think it's an art and I think that the industry overall could be better if we could do that better. So would love to learn from you, um, given, you know, folks have said you do that as well. I mean, I think the first one is the first piece of um, advice around giving feedback is like first recognize the person on the other end as a human. And they're trying really hard and um, they're probably really stressed. And so there's a certain level of empathy that needs to come through when you're giving that feedback. But I think the other side of the feedback is the feedback that you're giving, they the, they are desperately craving it. I think in each case of the matter, when I've given feedback to a founder, they had been wanting that someone to tell them the truth (laughs) for a long time and so um 
I think that you and usually the feedback is not particularly directive. Like if only you did this, you would be successful. Or if only you did this, like then, you know, all the things would work. It's more around like, hey, I think the way that you communicated this and this was something I gave to someone like literally a few days ago. I think what you were saying was this and that didn't come through in the email. I think if you actually would have said it a little bit like this, the person on the other line would understand what you're trying to say better. And so it's more around like, how are we strategizing? I think the feedback that I usually give to folks is actually another reflecting on almost exclusively strategy. And so how are we brainstorming together strategy to make the company successful? And that stuff is also really fun to me. And so um, I think it's one of the things too, as you know, for investors is like, what is the part of the company building process that you like the most? Dig really deeply into that. And because I think your feedback will be better when it's based off of that foundation than trying to be, you know, feedback for all the things all the time, like how to be a good manager or how to fire someone or how to lead lead a team or how to get to revenue or I mean that's just I think um too much and so what is it that you love to do what is it that other people come to you for and leveraging that and supporting that using that to support your founders that makes sense and I think that on the founder side like making sure you have a robust enough group of advisors people you trust who who kind of peek on those different things because you know one person won't know everything so finding that one person for go-to-market feedback on strategy or product or Finding product market fit, which I think is where most of the pre-seeded seed companies you work with would probably be at that point. So true. So true. Uh, well, I'd love to pick back up on the fund a little bit. And and I'm curious, I guess, now that you've watched the fund in the raise process, et cetera, is, is there anything that you'd wish you'd known about running the funds um, when you started um, this whole process? And what would that be? <laughs> it's such a great question. I'm a little, um, I got a bit of a cheat code by being at Precursor for so long. And so, I mean, in those early days, it was just me and Charles and we worked together in the same little room. And so I had exposure to everything. I saw all of the highs and all the lows. And so there wasn't much that I was coming into eyes, uh, as I am building impressionism capital that I didn't have exposure to already. So pretty eyes wide open. I think that, um, I think that the cool thing that I've been able to do differently or get exposure to now that I didn't have exposure to back then is also this like building a cohort of folks who are actually in the same, um, in the same timeline as you are with launching your fund. And so I have a, like a found, a GP founder friend who is also launching her fund literally on like the exact same timeline as me. And so it's been really fun to just like change notes back and forth. Like she sent in WhatsApp or like, okay, how did this go for you? Or, okay, this is what this happened to me. Like go back and forth and strategize that way. And also I think, uh, having someone, you know, a year above where I am and also like a year before me too has also been interesting to give me some additional context and then also you know having advisors who are like 10 15 years above and so it's been really cool just have like this 
uh, back to that example that we were saying too, for founders having like this cohort of advisor group that is like really representative of all the different things that you need. It's been a really similar process for me in this way of like finding the people who are building similar things or who have built similar things and are just at different parts of their journey. And so I can both get feedback from them and also uh, exchange notes with the folks who are more, um, you know, in it with me right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like you need your peer group. You need like the people who've done it, you know, a thousand times before. Um, the people were like five years ahead just to like give you, okay, this is what I would have done differently to help course correct sort of the immediate stuff. Um, but I love your point about also bringing people up behind you and helping the folks who are, you know, a year or two behind as they think about what they want to be building, um, which I think is so important as we help to grow and expand sort of what um, what people are doing in this industry, uh, which is super important. Um, and on that note, uh, you know, Impressionism is leading the way of building the future of BC. And so I'm curious, what's your vision for the ecosystem in the next 10, 20 years? Um, and where do you see Impressionism capital being 10 years from now? Oh, man, that's such a great question. I mean, I'm so excited for organizations like Harlem, like Precursor, like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of all the ones. There's so many that I admire, Chingona, Mac. Like, there's just a lot of people doing really great work in the ecosystem right now that I think is not, um, that I think is, is new. I think a lot of these people, you know, came up within the last six to 10 years. And so it's been really awesome to see the evolution evolve to this place. What, how I think about Impressionism Capital, I think of us as the next-gen multi-stage fund that's able to support a company from pre-seed until grow. I think there's a way to do this response to grow in a way that is thoughtful and grow in a way that is um, still has the founder's interests best, like has the founder's interests um, first. And I think we haven't really seen that done yet. And so I'm really excited to be a vanguard in that way. And I'm excited about all the people who are around me right now and seeing all of their journeys and seeing what, what the future of VC becomes, because I think there's still a lot of opportunity here. Um, and I think there's a lot of shakeup happening right now. Like it's like literally like we're watching it. I was talking to someone the other day and she was just like, everything feels like, uh, tenuous and sensitive because it is and when it is that tenuous you can retreat and go back to you know like that baseline of fear and that is you know feeds off of your most banal instincts which is not a recipe for uh anything great or you can build something new and be a part of that ideation and growth process that has the courage to think of what this could build, what we could birth in the future. And I think that's, I'm really excited to surround myself with folks who are in that ladder camp and take this time to think about what actually could come out of this, this really um, rocky moment. Mm -hmm. 
I love that. I'm excited too. Uh, I mean, it does feel incredibly chaotic at times, and I feel like every quarter the industry changes, um, which is a little unsettling as you think you figured it out. It, it's not figured out, but I think that's the beauty of it, right? Like we're always looking for founders that are chasing the next and building something positive for the future. And I think funds like Impress Cap, you know, are doing the same thing on the funding side um, as you, you know, find ways to sort of reshape the founder experience, reshape the funding experience. Um, and ultimately, I think make this industry better uh, for all of us. So really excited about the work you guys are you're doing. Um, and I'll wrap with two quick questions. Um, the first is, if there's a book or podcast that everyone who is looking to launch a fund should be reading or listening to, what would that be? Mm. Oh, that's such a great question. Now I'm looking around. I wish I was like near my bookshelf. That's probably the more accurate representation of what I'm actually reading or listening to. Honestly, I have been reading and listening to fewer podcasts now than ever before. But when I was just about to launch Impress Cap, I did listen to a lot of Brene Brown, like a lot, <laughs> a ridiculous amount. And she has like two or three different podcasts. And I think I listen to all of them because so much of what she talks is about like is courage. And I think that that's actually the, the element that you need to have more than anything else to launch your own venture is courage. And so whatever types of music, podcasts, books gives you, allows you to tap into that side of yourself and like deepen that well, I think um, do that. I love that. Uh, I'm a big Brene fan as well. So I'm, I'm sure you've been listening to some of the same ones. Um, and the last question, if you were not a VC, I guess, what would you be doing in the world? There's so many cool things to do in the world. Like there's so many. I think like I would probably be like, I actually can't even think of one thing because there's so many other things I could do. I wonder if I think I'd have a lot of fun um, being back in the public sector. I loved that work. It was really interesting. I actually align a lot of launching a venture fund to launching a political campaign. I think it's actually very similar. You're doing like the same type of work at the beginning, especially is like, what is your message? Who are you? Who are your early supporters? How are you like door knocking? I mean, it's like, it's not door knocking, but it's kind of. And so... Um, public service is definitely something that interests me and also like this is the thing I say a lot to other VCs especially other folks who are talking about like oh man it must be so hard to launch a venture fund and I'm just like is it? I mean yeah <laughs> this is <laughs> like my life is hard but like I know personally so many people who are living much more difficult lives than the yeah. life that I'm living right now and so also having that element of like groundedness and gratitude is something that I think as you continue to expose yourself to all of the other things that you could be doing, um, gives you access to too. Mm -hmm. That like level of perspective that like, um, you know, venture is not the end all be all. Um, and you could, you're right, you could be doing a ton of different things. Um, so whenever you, you do end up launching that political campaign, definitely let me know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Well, Sydney, it's been such a pleasure chatting. Um, thank you so much for joining our podcast and um, congrats again with everything you've, you're building with Impressionism Capital and excited uh, for the launch uh, and the continued um, analysis about what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.